Good morning, church. Okay, I'll be reading Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by the revelation as I've already briefly written. In this reading, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, for which was made known to the which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promised in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of his mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, through faith in in him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. I did know that Andrew got a far louder clap than I did, but it's totally fair enough. The coffee team are wonderful. Um, well, good morning, as um, Andrea and as Mike said, my name is Ed. I usually subject you to my singing voice, but this morning it is my talking voice. I serve on here at Reality Church as the Director of Worship. And um, I have the privilege today, really, of continuing our look at the book of Ephesians. You see, this year as a church, we have been exploring what it means to grow, what it, especially what it means to grow in Christ as a church for this city. But after this week, we are going to um, be taking a little pause of this series because we're going to start our current um, our series for Christmas and Advent, which we'll be looking at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Um, but then we will then again after that pick up uh, this series. However, it's quite interesting and I... I've, don't suppose many of you are going to know this, but um, after Christmas, what usually happens, if we were at a very traditional church, a church that followed, uh, it's called a liturgical calendar. The passage that would be read at that service would be the passage that we have heard today. Um, it's called the celebration of, I wonder if anyone actually knows this. Does anyone know what the celebration after Christmas is called? Oh, Come on, it is the epiphany, that's right. Um, the epiphany or the celebration of the epiphany comes from the Greek word meaning manifestation or appearance. Um, and you see, as a church and during, Christ, and during Christmas, we celebrate the appearance and the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is Emmanuel, God with us. But Jesus is no longer physically, bodily present here on earth. So then the question is, 
How is Jesus still manifesting himself? How is he still appearing to us in this world? And the wonderful, startling, kind of crazy truth is found in this passage. That Jesus is appearing, he's manifesting, he's making himself known through his people. That is us, through the church. Our passage tells us today that Jesus is still being made known to our city and world in and through us as the body of Christ, his church. However, seeing as today is a, um, the final one of this kind of series we've got at the moment, or until we pick it back up, I think it might be quite helpful, especially because there are a number of themes and points that Paul addresses here that we have spoken about in previous weeks. Um, it's also quite a good thing to just say, when we do a series through a book like Ephesians or anything else, we can, quite, we can come, become quite focused on just the section that we're looking at. But we forget that it's a whole book with a whole narrative and there are structures and there are themes that are picked up and picked out in different places. And so maybe as a church, as we explore this series, make it a habit to read through Ephesians once a week. You'll be surprised at how benefiting that will be. But just to quickly recap on Ephesians 1 and 2, Ephesians 1 starts off with these great long uh, sentences that Paul writes. Um, They praise God for his glory and his majesty and his work that is done in and through Jesus Christ. Now, it is especially praising God for the work that he does in adopting us as sons and as children of God. And in the second half, we see um, that it was God's purpose in all these things to unite us and unite everything in Jesus Christ and under Christ. We see that in 1 verse 10. God's plan was to always have this huge family of redeemed and reconciled people. And then in the second half of chapter 1, Paul then prays for the church. He prays that we wouldn't just know these truths, but we would experience them that we wouldn't just know about a God, but we would experience him. We would experience the God who is working the gospel out. And then chapter two kind of explores these two threads again of God's grace and of God's family, with the first half being focused very much on God's amazing, staggering, beautiful grace. We read in chapter two, verses four through five, it is because of the great love with which he has loved us that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. Paul then moves on to talk about the consequences of this new life that we have been given, a new identity, a new purpose, and indeed a new community. In chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, Paul shows us that through Jesus' death on the cross, we who were once far away from God and far away from each other have now been brought near That is, we have been brought together in Christ. And on this, we read that it is through the cross that Jesus in his body has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that separated man and created in himself one new unified humanity. As a result, result, the Jews and the Gentiles who were foreigners and strangers to each other, indeed foreigners and strangers to God in many ways, have become fellow citizens together. We saw last week that as fellow members, fellow citizens, we're being built together, built to become a holy temple for the Lord, to be his dwelling place. 
And it's in light of these things, and like he really did in the second half of chapter one, that Paul wants to go and pray for his church. He starts off by saying, for this reason, that is kind of the clue. And we know he's going to pray because he eventually does get round to it in verse 14. But just as Paul's about to pray, he, he stops himself. And he goes on this kind of tangent. Paul kind of does this a fair bit, but it is this beautiful, wonderful digression. And it's peculiar to see why. I think the clue really is, and at the end of verse one we read is, Paul, I'm the prisoner for the sake of Christ for you Gentiles. And I think Paul wants to clarify here what he means and explain that further. And so as we look at Paul's wonderful and amazing tangent in chapter 3, I hope today that firstly we will see um, what the mystery was that was made known to Paul, how Paul in turn made the mystery known, and then finally we will see what was the result, what was the consequence, what is the purpose behind all of this, what is the mystery, how is it made known, and what happens as the result. Firstly, the, the mystery. Um, when you think of the word mystery in English, it can probably be a bit confusing. You might have pictures of Agatha Christie's Poirot or Sherlock Holmes, these amazing detectives who can pick out um, and unsolve these mysteries and riddles and clues that nobody else would have a chance in coming to understand. Mystery um, in English means something that's impossible to work out, secretive, hidden, maybe confusing or unknowable. Yet, in the New Testament's usage of the word mystery, it always, always, always means something that is now being revealed. It's a mystery no more. It is an open secret. Um, it's a little bit like if I was to ask um, any of you, what is my mother's maiden name? I don't think any of you would know. But if I was to say, okay, well, my mother's maiden name is Hatton, you would now be knowers of the mystery and also know as of my first security step. Um, <laughs> but indeed, in verses 2 through 5, Paul is defending the reality that a revelation was given to him by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, like, there was a mystery in God that was hidden, but now it has been made known, it has been revealed, and Paul doesn't hide that mystery and that knowledge in himself. He shares it, he declares it. In fact, he also says that it was also made known to the other apostles and the prophets, not just to me. And as he beautifully writes in verse 6, and the mystery is that the Gentiles and the Jews are now heirs together. We are members together of the same body. We are sharers together in the promises of God. We're fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow sharers in the promises of the Bible. And I think we, 2,000 years later, miss how significant this was and how challenging this was. But in fact, the Jew-Gentile conundrum was the big pastoral question of the early church. It runs as the fairly dominant thread throughout most of the New Testament letters. And we don't have time really today to do a deep dive into this and what that means. But hopefully it will suffice to say that the Jews always believed that the nations would be blessed by the coming of the Jewish Messiah, that is, through Jesus Christ. Um, but what was unanticipated was the sheer magnitude of the Gentile inclusion um, and really what God was going to do with 
this new covenant family? Are they going to have to go through the same rules and regulations that Israel did in the Old Testament? But in fact, in one sense, the New Testament church is the fulfillment, not the replacement of what Israel in the Old Testament points towards. Where now our unity far extends and far goes beyond any national or ethnic categories. Our unity is something much deeper. But what is this unity and how do we become a unified people? Well, again, the answer to that question goes back to a topic which we have already discussed. I think it was the first sermon in the series of Ephesians, Bijan preached on union. The, the fact that we are united with Jesus, that the mark of a Christian, in one sense, the defining characteristic is that you are united with Christ. Now, these terms can be quite confusing and they can feel a bit abstract. Um, but I think this idea of union with Jesus is beautifully symbolised in baptism. For those of you who know and have seen it, baptism is the initiation ceremony into the Christian faith. And what happens is the individual who's getting baptised, they get taken down into the waters, which represents their death to their self, their death to sin, their death to the world. And it also identifies them with the death of Jesus Christ. And then as they're raised up out of the waters, it symbolises their new life in Christ. Baptism is the sign and the symbol that God has given to his church to demonstrate our new birth and our new life in him. As we read earlier, is we have been made alive together with Christ. Now the consequence of all this means that if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself someone who has been united with Jesus Christ, it means that the very source and the substance of your life is exactly the same as mine. It means as we experience our union up with Christ Jesus, we experience our union with fellow believers. And it's in Jesus Christ then that this radically new and radically unified humanity is formed. And this new people share together in the privileges of God. They share together in the blessings which he's blessing us. And we share together in his promises. And that was the mystery made known. This thing that was a confusing conundrum before has been revealed that this is how God has done it. Through the death of Jesus Christ and through our new life in him. But so that's the mystery. But, and that was the revelation that was given to Paul. But then how did Paul make this mystery known? You see, Paul didn't just go, okay, well, the Holy Spirit gave me this revelation. I'm going to let you be on your own and figure it out. No, he says here, quite simply, that Paul declared it. He proclaimed it. He preached it. He wrote about it in letters. And isn't that just the most amazing example for us? If you know and love the Lord Jesus, you have knowledge of the greatest treasure that this world has to offer. Imagine if you were stranded in a desert with a group of people. Would you not tell them that you'd stumbled upon the source of infinite water? Would you not show them where to go to get this drinking water? Would you just leave them to figure it out themselves? And the good news of Jesus is the well of living water. It is the eternal water to this dying and thirsty world. 
We must share it with sensitivity, of course, but share it. Paul had come to understand that the good news of Jesus really is the greatest news possible. He writes here in verse 8, and I've been just loving this phrase, that he's come to preach the boundless riches of Christ. That he wants to make known in other translations the unsearchable riches of him. Paul is here using language in its most heightened, descriptive form. And that type of language is throughout the book of Ephesians. It's why many people love this as a New Testament letter. In, verse one, in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes about the riches of God's grace with which is lavished upon us. In 1, verse 18, Paul writes, the riches of his glory inheritance, which key for today is in his, glory, in his holy people. Paul has written about God's incomparably great power 1 verse 19, and about how God is rich in mercy, 2 verse 4. And again, about the incomparable riches of his grace, which is expressed to us by his kindness in Christ Jesus. And it's really interesting to note that these descriptions happen primarily at, in the first half of the letter. Before Paul gets down to the nitty and gritty of practical Christian living, which he does get down to, he wants to first show us how great and how glorious and how good the God who we're serving is. The point here being, if we want to live for God, we've got to know him. Before we can live lives that are constrained and we call Christian, we must first know the God who we are serving. Before you stand for God, you must delight in him. And I think this is something that I want to press a little this morning. You see, I have an old pastor who would say that um, he, Ephesians was his bread and butter. He would, if, if he was ever late and didn't have a clue what to preach on that morning, he would preach through Ephesians. Um, because he would always say that m- most of my pastoral ministry most of the difficulties and the struggles of it could be resolved if people would just see what is theirs in Ephesians. We so often fail to fully appreciate and know who God is. We fail to appreciate who Christ is and what he has given us. We forget to appreciate these unsearchable riches which are ours in Christ Jesus. And why is that? Well, one theologian describes it and the reason for that is being sin you know sin we can define in many different ways um rebellion against god lawlessness oppression against our neighbor pride and they're all true um but the theologian martin luther he described it as man being bent in on himself he's curved in contorted Bent in just looking at himself, disfigured, looking only to glorify and live for himself. Nobody else and nothing else matters. And I find that picture really helpful because it shows us kind of the remedy for it, right? That is that we need to look up and look out onto Jesus. We need to turn from inwards looking to outwards looking. We need to look up onto Jesus Christ and him alone. And as, as we look up and as we look outwards, as our gaze goes from being this kind of just fixated on myself, we see, yes, we see the God who has saved us and given us new life, but we also see our fellow brothers and sisters 
We see those people that God has unified us with. One of my favourite hymns captures something about these beautiful riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. It's got the words, Come, all you pining, hungry poor. Come to the Saviour's bounty and taste. Behold that never-failing store for every willing guest. And here shall your numerous wants receive a free and a full supply. He has unmeasured bliss to give and joys that never die. In Jesus there are immeasurable, uncontainable, unfathomable riches. They are free gifts of his grace and the charge really here is to come and delight in them. Come and delight in yourself in these riches that while you are yet an enemy of God, Christ has come to save you. He knows your every weakness, your every sin. He knows your every doubt and your every fear. And he loves you with an almighty, everlasting love. To borrow a phrase, God sees you to the bottom and loves you to the skies. God has made you alive together with Christ. And what's more, he has given you a new family. And this family is where you find a crucial role for yourself and your purpose. And that really moves us on to our third point. After reminding us to delight in the riches of Christ, Paul goes on to speak about the church. I think we wouldn't do that, would we? If someone was to go, okay, what are the benefits for you in Jesus? You would probably talk about your salvation or the, the fact that you've got your new life and um, you've, you've experienced reconciliation with God. Would we then immediately, in the next sentence, like Paul does, almost in the next breath, go and talk about the church? But Paul saw the church as one of the most beautiful jewels in the crown that is ours in Christ Jesus. And particularly, Paul talks about what God's eternal purpose was for the church. In chapter 3, verse 9 through 10, we read, that it is now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Last week, uh, Bijan preached a sermon on the church especially about how we are all members here together. We are members who are needy and needed. And Paul here continues that thought, but describes that it is through the church. It is through her local expression as a gathered, worshipping, word-centred, unified, deeply unified community that we express and demonstrate to the universe the wisdom of God. In fact, we demonstrate the very gospel that saves us. And this is why we lament with and weep with those who have experienced deep and traumatic pain at the hands of church and her leaders. It's also why we lament and weep when the church forsakes the very gospel that forms it. Instead of being shaped by the beautiful and transformative gospel of God, it becomes shaped by the message of the world. And as a result, instead of making God's true wisdom known, it makes the folly of the world known. And it might be because of these things. I know it may not. It may just be because we're so quick, we're so slow to grasp it. 
that some have relegated the church to be no more than just a Sunday social club, the place really to come and make your lunch plans. Church becomes something that's easy, convenient, and maybe at its best, occasionally helpful. Do you remember in COVID when church was labelled as a non-essential service? Do we see church as a non-essential service? But let's be clear, though, every church, everywhere, in every place, in every season, including reality, needs reform and renewal. But God has not forsaken his church, and nor should we. God is still building her, he is still refining her, and God is dwelling and working in the midst of the people who are part of and come together as his church. To be a biblical Christian is to be involved with the local church. The church isn't an optional extra or an accident this side of the cross. The church is integral to God's plan. It always has been. In verse 11, we read today that the church was, and this was all done in accordance with his, that is God's eternal plan. The church is God's plan for changing the world. It is central to history, it is central to the gospel, it is central to Christian living. And the consequences of the gospel aren't just that you are raised to new life, it's that you're raised into a community. That God didn't just save us and then leave us alone, he saves us and gives us a new family. And as we have just seen, where we were once living for ourselves and for our own glory, we now live for each other. We live as a reconciled, redeemed people who demonstrate to, as it were, Satan and his demons, Gabriel and his angels. We demonstrate to them, indeed, to the whole universe and the world around us, the beautiful reality of Jesus Christ. And just taking this a step further as we come into land, I find all of this genuinely unbelievable. Well, not unbelievable, just really incredible. You see, answers to so many of the human wants and wishings of this world. We see in these 13 verses, three significant remedies for the pressures and the tensions that we see. Have you felt pain and have you seen recently the struggle of unity in humanity? Where there is war and strife and pain between brothers? The good news of Jesus shows us that there is, there is real hope. That the reconciliation that Jesus brings is not just nice, but it's needed. And secondly, we see that in a world that is trying to make you look for treasures and joys in all these different places, whether it's money, jobs, sex, power, all these things, we see that the only genuine, true beauty, treasure is in Jesus. In a world that is languishing, thirsty, hungry, we see that Jesus is the satisfaction that we're all longing for and all needing. Jesus and his gospel, again, aren't nice. They're necessary. And finally, we see in this world so much messaging about you've got to find your purpose, you've got to find your meaning in life. And it's, uh, it's always a bit silly, isn't it? It's like, I've got to do that by a planner or something like that, trying to sell me. But the message of Jesus shows that we are formed for 
the wisdom of God, that actually together as a church, together in this place this morning, we are making the manifold wisdom of God known. Is that something that we can be apathetic about? Or, ah, yeah, I might go this morning. Or, oh, it's a bit cold, so I'll just stay in. God has given us a purpose and a plan and has formed us to be the people of God gathered here today. There is something very true, and I can say this, that God has called you here today to be making his manifold wisdom known and expressed in how you serve and love God and how we live and serve each other. And I think it's, I wasn't, I wasn't a thousand percent sure if I was going to share this story or not, um, but just as we come into land, um, I came to faith when I was 16 years old. Um, I have amazing and wonderful and loving parents and I have a great family and we get on really well. Um, but sadly, when I was 11, my mum and dad divorced. And I think throughout my teenage years, I was trying to search for meaning and purpose and belonging in every which place, um, in every wrong place, really. And then eventually when I was 16, a friend invited me to come to his church. Um, and his church, it kind of reminds me a lot like our church today. It was in a school hall. It was often a lot colder than you'd want it to be. Um, people had to set up and tear down each week. And, you know, I had no idea the amount of tre- pressures and stresses that were probably going on to fill rotors and uh, make sure that the coffee's nice and the pastries are here on time. But as a lost and wandering 16-year-old, I went into that church and I wouldn't have been able to tell you then, but I look back on it now and I'm able to say that one of the reasons why I kept going back was that I saw that family worshipping. That I saw these people who came from all different backgrounds, all different social and economic classes. We had genuinely had millionaires in the church as well as people who were coming out of prisons and addictions and from all walks of life and together they were worshiping and glorifying God and that is the power you know it's we see it's the manifold wisdom of God to make known you go great but what's that look like my in one sense my journey with Christ is reflected by the beautiful coming together of an eclectic and mixed group of people There is power in knowing and worshipping God together. And that looks often a lot more practical than we want it to. Yes, it it really does, and do not mishear me. We need to pray for the church. We need to come to these prayer meetings. We lift up our voice in song. Yes, absolutely, but chairs need to be set out. Lights need to be made. People need to rehearse music. Lyrics need to be up on the screen. We've also got ministries part of this church that serve the broken and the, those experience homelessness in the city. There are all ways that you can get involved and get stuck into this church to make the manifold wisdom of God known to this world. In so many ways, this talk this morning is an invitation to come. Come and see what is truly yours in Jesus Christ, his unmeasurable riches, his beauties, and come and be part of this church. Come and see how you can be involved, how your purpose can be made known in witnessing to the wisdom of God. Would you pray with me? Um, Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift of your church. 
Lord, we thank you that it is a place where your goodness, your kindness, your beauty and your reconciliation are made known. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are continually delighting in you, that we would see you as beautiful and as glorious. And Lord, we pray particularly for this morning and for this time as we come into a response. Lord, would you be opening the eyes of our hearts to see you and to delight in you? Would you be giving us a stomach to digest the beautiful food and riches that are ours in Christ Jesus? And Lord, I pray especially that maybe there'll be people today who would feel a sense of commissioning, a call to serve in some new ways. All for your glory, all for your honour and fame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh,